You are listening to a broadcast of Dublin First Baptist Church, Pastor Cameron McGill in Dublin, North Carolina. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist Church and the Lake Church to hear from God's Word. Joshua 6, on the subject I'm on, the winning side. Guys, if y'all can bring the monitors down just a little bit. Thank you. I'm on the winning side. I want to read in part the sixth chapter of the book of Joshua just to kind of set the stage of what's going on. We've come through the 40 days of spies going into the promised land, coming back, their doubt and their fear causing them to fail God. They didn't go into the promised land. Moses would be taken from his position of authority and leadership, replaced now with Joshua. The 40 years of wandering in the wilderness has been completed, and now the time is at hand. Time for the children of Israel to go and possess the land, and the last obstacle in their way is this walled and fortified city of Jericho. It's one of the oldest stories in the Bible. When you were a child, you probably sang about it. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. The walls came tumbling down. But this morning, believe it or not, we're going to see three things in the text that I believe lie before us and will be an encouragement and a challenge to us as a church and also individually as believers. Now, Jericho in verse 1 was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. In other words, they were fearful. They were on guard. They had battened down the hatches because they heard that God's people were on their way. Nobody went out of the city. Nobody came into the city. Verse 2, And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I that I have given thee, or I have given into thine hands Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. And you shall compass the city, all ye men of war. If you write in your Bible and take notes, certainly nothing wrong with that. You might note there that these men of war totaled some 40,000 people. 40,000 foot soldiers. Can you imagine the sound of that marching? The Bible says, and you shall compass this city. Go round about the city one time. This thou shalt do six days. So... For six days, walk around the city, marching together one time. And then, verse 4, on the, seven day, on the seventh day, seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the Bible says that on the seventh day you shall compass the city now seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets, and it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all of the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. Joshua in verse 12 rose up early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. This represents his power and his presence. And then seven priests, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew with the trumpets, and the armed men went before them, and the rearward came after the ark of the Lord, the priest going on and blowing with the trumpets. So verse 20, we fast forward to the climax of the text and the story so the people then shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets, and it came to pass 
that when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. Father, how I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, give understanding and unction, give us open ears, minds, and hearts that we would receive this message. God, I pray if there's one person under the sound of my voice that could not honestly say that they're on the winning side, that today their life might be radically changed. And for those of us that are believers, help us to realize that we're no longer victims in any way, but victors through the work of God. Speak to us, and may we respond in Jesus' name. Amen. You've all heard this story, and you could probably give testimony of what took place, but there's a couple of things in this text that maybe you've not thought of, and I just want to encourage you, number one, that there was an impossible mission. Did you know that God seldom puts anything easy before us? He seldom puts anything simple before us. He, he seldom puts anything that would be qualified as a piece of cake. The fact of the matter is that when he puts something before us, it's usually going to be bigger than us. His visions are going to be higher than ours. His dreams are going to be more bold than ours. But he trusts us and he calls upon us to an impossible Mission. All throughout the Word of God, we see God using weak things to do great things, inferior people to do uh, just superior things. Think about the children of Israel. They were small in number, even in this case at 40,000. And yet the nation of Israel is today still the strongest nation on planet Earth, not because of their military or political power and not because of their reputation in the region, but because of the hand of Almighty God. God that is upon them. Friend, I want to tell you, when we come to Joshua 6, we see an impossible mission. Why? Well, number one, Jericho was a fortified city. Now think about this. All around this city, there would be a wall nearly 30 feet tall. And on the outside of that wall, there would be a bank of earth. In other words, a, a, a bank of mud and grass and no telling what. And it would span about six acres around the wall. And then on the outside, there was another wall, this one being about 15 feet tall. So as you would approach Jericho, you would first see this thick, strong wall. You could see the mound behind it and then another wall towering over the first one. We realized this was a fortified city and the purpose of their fortification was military. The fact that they knew that they wanted to be strong, that they wanted to be a city that could not be penetrated, could not be overtaken. And the children of Israel were no match for such a wall. They did not have, um, you know, tanks and, 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 and all kinds of armor. They simply had uh, themselves. They simply were the people of God. They were foot soldiers. They were carrying a knife, or a knife to a gunfight, if you will. Jericho was a fortified city. Number two, though, Jericho and the inhabitants thereof were a formidable foe. 
They were a fierce enemy. They were Canaanites. In every way, they were the enemy of not only the people of God, but of God himself. They were ready for a long battle. We know from history that they stored up many goods. We remember those that were alive and around in 1999, how there was a panic of Y2K, and people would stockpile water and all kind of necessities and food and staples, and they were, they were making sure that in case everything just crashed, uh, that they could sustain life for some period uh, of time. Don't you know that would have been fun after about a year or two of drinking nothing but water and eating crackers? I want to tell you, I'm thankful Y2K did not crash around us. But they were ready. They could have sustained life for many, many years to come. They were a formidable foe. Israel was up against an impossible mission. What God was calling them to do, they were absolutely unable and unequipped to do. If you remember before the 40 years in the wilderness, the children of Israel had gone into Canaan. The 12 spies would come back and they all 12 would agree that they were no match for the inhabitants of the promised land, that they were like grasshoppers and the Canaanites like giants and they chose not to go with God. They chose to let their fear and their concern for their own safety get in the way of following God. Friend, may I tell you, when God has an impossible mission, we have a choice. We can either look at the odds that are against us or the one who is for us. We can look at how things are stacked against us or we can look at the fact that His Word says, Greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world and that I am more than a conqueror through Christ. There is no mission before us that is truly impossible when it comes to God. There was an impossible mission. Number two, they were an inferior army. Sometimes I look at myself and I look at all of my weaknesses and all of my frailties and I begin to tell God all of the things that I cannot do, all of the things that I'm incapable of doing, all the things that limit me and hold me back. But I understand that all throughout the Word of God, He chose the weak and He chose the frail and He chose the unqualified and the unequipped. Why? So that He would get all of the glory. If Israel had approached the walls of Jericho and they would have been ready with their equipment and their weaponry and if they were coming with their caterpillar, you know, uh, uh, bulldozers, listen, God would not have got any of the credit. But when they show up, nothing but their bodies and their foot soldiers marching, listen, here they come come to the fight. Here they come to the war. And what have they got? The Ark of the Covenant of God and a bunch of ram's horns. We might call them trumpets. That's all they got. And we know the end of the story. Friend, I want to tell you, God was setting the battle up so that at the end of the day, He could get all the glory. They were an inferior army, but for God. Let me give you two things that I think are, are, are noteworthy here. Number one, God chooses to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Did you know that? There are some ordinary people in this text. There are. I asked Carol the other day, I said, Carol, what do you want in your next preacher? She said, I hope he don't slobber and spit like you do. Amen. <laughs> she didn't really. I just thought I'd make because I just spit on three people and I was trying to feel better about it. There are some of the most ordinary and common people in this story. You might be here today and say, God cannot use me. I am disqualified. Preacher, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've been through. I am disqualified. There is a character in this text 
that probably is the most disqualified person in all of Scripture, and yet God instantly qualifies her for His service. In fact, He moves her right into the family line. Look with me. The Bible says that these two spies, they were basically scouts that would go into Jericho. One of them, we do not know their name. I wish we did. The other one, we would call him Salmon, and not Salmon, but Salmon, because that's what we say down here. But anyway, and these two spies would go into Jericho, and they would take refuge not in the local church. They would take refuge not in the temple. They would take refuge not in the place of worship, not in the high political leader home, but they would take refuge in a harlot's house. Her name was Rahab. She not only was despised of those in the community, except for a few men here and there, she was so rejected that she didn't live in the city. She lived on the outskirts, on the outside, living literally in the outer wall, perfectly positioned by the hand of God for the task at hand, I might add. Maybe you're here today and you say, I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. So did Rahab. You might say, I didn't have anything growing up. Neither did Rahab. You might say, you know what? I made a lot of mistakes when I was young. You're in good company. So did Rahab. The Bible said that she willingly took these two servants of God. She recognized them. Listen, the reputation of God was upon them. And the Bible said that when she saw them, she recognized them and said, I've heard about the power of your God. I've heard about what God is doing. I've heard about how God has parted the seas and how God has provided for your people. I've heard about your God. Friend, I tell you, it doesn't matter so much that they've heard my name or your name or the name of this church or some other church, but that they've heard about Yahweh, the Almighty God of Israel, the one who is and has ever, forever been and forevermore shall be. We're to make His reputation known. Amen? Think about this. Had these spies. She said, fellas, she said, fellas, I've got a hiding place. Up in the rafters of my house. I don't know because I can't prove it, but I dare say that probably wasn't the first time she had hid some old boy up there. But this time there was a different purpose for this. You know what I mean? So they were up there in the rafters. Can't you imagine as they were up there shaking and holding on, mud all around them, straw falling down? The king somehow heard that there were two scouts or spies from Israel in Jericho. And he said, he said I heard they might be at Rahab's house. Well, everybody knew who Rahab was. And they went out, went over that first wall, went into that second wall, and they found Rahab's house, knocked on the door, and they said, Rahab, are those two fellows here? She said, oh, no. She said, they were here, but they're gone. She said, last I saw them, they were climbing that hill over yonder. And those Jericho soldiers took off after them by foot. She put them on the wrong trail. She pulled him down. She said, fellas, listen, I've done something for you and I've got to ask you to do something for me. I know your people are going to come in here. I've heard. I know what the plan is. I know that your God's going to destroy this, this uh, city and I know that everybody's going to be wiped off the face of the earth, but I wonder, would you remember me? But she went on. It's one thing to want to save your own hide. She said, would you remember my mama and my daddy and my brothers and my sisters and their kids? Would you remember my family? When this destruction takes place, those two spies made her a promise. Surely you and your family will be spared. Footnote, she'd go on later to marry Salmon, one of those spies. Ain't that cool? Ain't that cool? 
Let me tell you a little bit more about Rahab. I'll probably preach a message on Rahab somewhere down the road, but I might not get to do it here. So uh, I just want to share this. Rahab was the great-great-grandmother of David. She was the mother of one called the kinsman redeemer. She was in the line and lineage of Jesus, y'all. A Canaanite, wait a minute, from the wrong side of town, a common old harlot, that's right, in the line and lineage of Jesus. Look her up. In the whole New Testament, there's one place, Hebrews, where we have the hall of faith, list all the faithful ones. And there's only two women's name mentioned in the hall of faith, Sarah and Rahab. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things, but she was willing to be used of God. She didn't say, oh, no, y'all aren't coming in here. No, I don't want to be a part of this. She says, I want in on the plan of God. Number two, not only does he use ordinary people to do extraordinary things, he uses unusual means to do unexplainable miracles. What did he do but give them the most absurd and ludicrous instructions? God seldom tells us to do anything that makes sense. God seldom tells us to do the logical True story, Charles Stanley's church, First Baptist Atlanta, many years ago, they were going through a program. They were trying to buy a new piece of property, and they literally were $1 million shy, and the deadline for raising the money was quickly approaching. About a week before the deadline, a young lady in the church, she had been married about a year. God convicted her that she would give her wedding ring, her engagement ring and wedding band to the church. Married only a year, get it? She was not a wealthy person. That was about all she had of any value. So that week she went to her husband and said, Honey, I know you're probably not going to understand this, but God has convicted me that I should give my wedding ring, my engagement ring, and my wedding band to the church on Sunday for our building, our building program. And the husband looked at her and said, Are you crazy? She said, No, but I've got to do it. It's what God's led me to do. He said, But honey, it's not worth that much. You're trying to raise a million dollars. It's just pennies compared. What, what do you? She said, I've got to do it. He said, Well, if God is telling you to do that, then you've got to do it. Be obedient. So that Sunday, she walked the aisle in the invitation. The pastor had put that challenge. We've got just a few days left now. We've got to raise this money or we're going to lose the property. If you've ever been to this property, it's amazing. The old Mary Kay building there in Atlanta. She took her ring to the altar. She handed it to Dr. Stanley and said, God led me. And he knew she'd only been married a year. God led me to give my ring, my engagement ring, my wedding band to the church for the building fund. He looked at her and said, are you crazy? She said, well, no, but you're actually the second person that's asked me that this week. But I'm not. He said, well, if God's telling you to do it, then I've got to take it. I've got to, I can't stand in the way of you being obedient to God. That service, Dr. Stanley asked everyone to be seated. He explained what had just happened. And all over that congregation at First Baptist Atlanta, when it was downtown, people began coming to the altar, one after the other after the other, bringing checks and bringing different things that God had burdened their heart because of the faithfulness of this one young bride. At the end of that service, they had raised $1.2 million and an elderly gentleman walked over to that bride and handed her her engagement ring and wedding band back and said, you did what God told you. I'm now doing what God told me to do. He had put the money to cover it in the offering. God uses unusual means to do unexplainable miracles. In this case, he says, walk around the walls one time for six days. I love it because the Bible says, and they walked. Bless God, they didn't have a committee. They didn't form a research group. They didn't take a survey of the people. They just did it. 
I don't know about you, but I got four youngins. And every once in a while, I wish they'd just do it. Don't analyze why you should have to make up your bed since you're just going to get back in it tonight and mess it up again. Just do it. Amen. And when God tells us to do, somebody said, Preacher, why are you doing what you're doing right now? Because God said do it. That's it. Don't make anything else out of it. Listen, if they're out there talking on the streets about all the things that I, bless God, I wish I was getting all that people think I'm getting for doing what I'm doing. True. I hate to say it, but if I was getting everything everybody thinks I'm getting for what I'm doing, I wouldn't go to White Lake. I'd be moving to like San Diego, Honolulu or somewhere. But anyway, when God says do it, we've got to do it. Whether it's illogical or irrational, whether it makes common sense or man sense, listen, God never makes a mistake. In this case, he said, march one time around the wall. Go around the whole wall. Can you imagine the fear with every step as they looked up at these two walls? As they looked up and they could see the power and the authority of that city. And with every step, their fear could have gotten bigger. Their, their, their anxiety could have gotten bigger. But they realized there was something bigger than either one of those walls put together. And it was the God they served. And they kept walking. Day one. Day two. Day three, day four, day five. I imagine on day six their hearts were pounding a little bit heavier. Tomorrow's the day. Tomorrow's the day. Tomorrow's the day we get to march seven times. We get to blow the trumpet, shout the shout, and see what God's going to do. So finally the sixth day came, and on that evening I believe they hunkered down. Joshua got them together and said, Now tomorrow's the big day. There's only one more day left. I want to tell you, friend, the, the just a sense of expectation of what God was going to do. God uses unusual means to do unexplainable miracles. Number three, and I'm done. There was a, an irrational command. We kind of segue right into that. There was an irrational command. Think about that. How was it that they were obedient to something that was so ludicrous? You know, I submit two things to you. Now get this, don't miss it. Number one, their confidence turned into courage. Their confidence, listen, nothing will give you courage like confidence. Now, I've never raced a car because typically I've always had slow cars. But I've known some guys that had the baddest, fastest cars in town. Good to have Brother Andy Hood here this morning. He used to have a Chevelle with the four speed in the floor. I don't think anybody ever beat you, did they? <laughs> hey, brother, let me tell you something. The statute of limitations is over, and that car's been in the junkyard a long time. They ain't going to do nothing to you. You got a reputation over in Clarkton. Don't, don't be acting like you somebody. There is something about it. When you know that you've got the fastest car and can't nobody touch you, you're not afraid to go up against anybody. They had confidence in God. Listen, they had a lot of reason to have confidence. They had watched when the moment the ark of God touched the shore, not touched the shore, the seas parted for God's presence to go right through. They had a lot of reason to have confidence. Friend, can I tell you, every person in this room knows enough about the power of God to give us confidence. There was confidence and it led to their courage. 
They walked all seven days by faith and not by sight. Their obedience would be met with God's omnipotence, but they were dependent upon the two. If today we would look back at history and say that they marched one day or even six days or even six times on the seventh day, the walls of Jericho would still be standing. But they had such confidence in the Word of God and His command. In fact, they had so much confidence in the man of God in Joshua that they took God at His Word and it gave them great courage. They weren't surprised when those walls came down. They knew that God was going to do it. They had confidence, and for that there was courage. Notice, if you will, that the ark of God was with them. Important to note, the ark of God represents the presence of God and the power of God. If at any moment they doubted, they could just look at that and be reminded. Friend, may I say to you, as you move into this next chapter of life here at Dublin First Baptist Church, how important to know that the presence and the power of God goes with you. Amen? You realize that, right? Their confidence led to courage. Number two, and I'm done. Their vigilance led to victory. Verse 20, so the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it came to pass. Love that little phrase. And it came to pass. There's the, there's the four-letter word to look for. When. When the people heard the sound of the trumpets, when the people shouted with the great shout, then the wall fell down. They maintained their faithfulness to the very end. They didn't lose heart. They didn't lose hope. Can I tell you, there were probably times that they felt like sitting down, that they felt like quitting, that they felt like questioning and wondering, God, where are you in all this? God, couldn't there have been a simpler way? God, couldn't there have been a more logical way? God, I don't understand what you're doing. It took great patience. It took a calmness in their heart. I need to give you this real quick. Four o'clock this morning. I don't sleep real well. That's all right. It gives you time with God. That sounds real arrogant and all that, but it's just when I get to be alone with God. Four o'clock this morning, God spoke to my heart this, and I want you to get this. When we think about the obedience of the children of Israel, there are two things that if you're not careful, you'll jump over in this text and not get. Two things. Number one, think about this. 40,000 men. That's more than everybody lives in Bladen County. 40,000 men. Number one, they had unity. What does that mean? They were all going in the same direction. All right? It's right there. They had unity. They were all going in the same direction. By the way, there's two options of going around Jericho. Right? All the NASCAR fans know how you get around the NASCAR track. You know? You'll never hear them say, coming out of turn four, headed into turn three. No. They always go to turn one, then two, then three, then four. They're always going like this. <coughs> round and around and around and around and around. <laughs> I'm doing it for their sake. How many of y'all want to hear me finish my sermon? Hmm. I'm just glad he's awake. Been up since early, bless his heart. 
everybody was going in the same direction. I don't need to really preach that point this morning. It's just simple. God's people always have to be going in the same direction. There is an enemy, and he is called the author of confusion. And right now, he has every spear of hell pointed at this place. Keep your unity. I think that's one of the things that has made Dublin as strong as it has been over these many, many years, is that we're unified. It's a shame that Dublin was known as one of the few churches that was unified in Bladen County. Do not let Dublin become another statistic of division. They were unified. They were all going in the same direction. Ah, but there's another point. Not only did they have unity, they also had harmony. I've talked about that before, but in this text, it's really, really fitting. They had harmony. Listen, not only were they going in the same direction, and I'm not sure what direction that is, this way or this way, but they were all going at the same pace. 40,000 people. If one would have tried to get ahead or if one would have fallen behind, it would have been calamity. There'd have been bodies everywhere. People would have been tripping and falling all over one another. The people of Jericho would have been looking out and laughing. Look at those clowns. They were all going at the same pace. Listen, be careful. Don't get ahead of God. Don't be in such a rush to find your next pastor that you missed the will of God. Don't fall behind God. Don't say, God, we're just going to kind of hunker down. Listen, I, I'm a, I, please don't misunderstand this. I understand that I've stretched this church like a, like a rubber band over the years. I've asked you to do things and to have confidence to step out in faith and do things that were illogical and, and plan a church and, and, and partner with churches and go all over the globe and all these kind of things. I want to tell you, there probably, if we were to be honest, there are many today that would say, I wouldn't mind going back to a time where we just were kind of our little church. And everything we did, we did in 28332. And everything we did, you could see when you looked in one direction or the other. I want to tell you, it's simpler. It don't get messy catching fish till you start catching them, does it? Not a bit messy till you catch a few. In fact, you could take out nearly $400,000 and kind of bankroll it, not even have to build a building or buy it or do anything. Just kind of back off. That's not the pace God works at. The fact of the matter is, this old world is like the sand of an hourglass. She's running out. And if ever the church, it's high time for her to awake and become vigilant. It's now. God, I want to be in pace with you. By the way, they were in harmony with God and with one another. Think about it. Who was setting the pace? The ark of God. Isn't that cool? Don't you just love the Bible? I mean, all you got to do is look at it. It just come right alive. The presence of God was setting the pace. <clears throat> so they were in harmony with God. They were also in harmony with one another. <clears throat> Imagine if discord would have reared its ugly head. What a calamity it had been. Let me give you this, and I'm done, really and truly. 1930. Archaeologist uncovered the ruins and the walls of Jericho, what was left. 
Up until that point, Jericho was called the mistake of the Bible. Many Bible scholars that had a lot of education but very little relationship with Jesus called it a parable. Tell that to the 40,000 that marched. But anyway, 1930, they uncovered and they said, wait a minute, we found it under a series of other cities, but they found it. Here's what they found. That it was unlike anything they had seen before, for these walls did not naturally collapse over time. A stone here and a stone there, one stone going this way and one stone going that way, and finally just kind of crumbling around itself. But they said it appeared that this wall had come down in a seismic event. That's earthquake. That it happened instantaneously. And that when it fell, it fell to the outside, which would make no sense. Remember, the inside wall has a mound of clay up against it. So naturally, if there's an earthquake, that mound is going to push the wall in, right? But it didn't. It came out. Now, why is that so important? Well, the children of Israel, as that wall came down and as it tumbled and as it creamed and crashed over the mound of dirt and into that lower wall, it literally made a ramp. For the Israelites to march. Remember what the Bible says? And they climbed or they marched up into the city. God made a way. He put a ramp before them. Come on in. But there was another part. They said the strangest thing was on the north side of Jericho there was a small area of that wall that while the entire wall was destroyed there was one part that absolutely not one stone was touched. Not one part of that wall had crumbled in spite of that seismic event. How did that happen? Why is... I want to tell you if they'd have looked on the door they'd have seen the letter R... Rahab, she and her family were saved by a scarlet thread hanging out her window. One last thing that we need to glean from this text, and that's not what happened in 1400 B.C., but what's going to happen soon and very soon. You remember what took place on day number seven? They marched around that wall Seven times the number of completeness and perfection. And when the time was right, the Bible says that seven priests stood, put the trumpets to their mouths, and they sounded the shout of the, or they sounded the sound of the trumpets. And with that trumpet blast, the people realized the time was there, and they shouted, and at their shout, the walls came down. We look in the book of Revelation, and we know that one of these days, and I believe it'll be soon and very soon, that seven angels are going to stand on the beckoning call of Almighty God, place the trumpets to their precious holy lips, and they're going to blast that trumpet sound. The Bible says, and then there'll be a shout of the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we, that's the church, who are alive and remain, shall be caught up together in the clouds so that we would ever be with the Lord. I wasn't there in 1400 B.C., but I'll be there whether through the grave or through the air. I'm going to be there when he comes back, not as a victim of the grave, but as a victor through the cross. Beloved, I want you to remember this for as long as the Lord would recall it to memory, that I'm on the winning side. I'm on the winning side. Once I wandered 
Out in sin had no peace, no joy within, and my soul was burdened down with pride. Then my Savior came along and He showed me I was wrong, and He placed me on the winning side. I am on the winning side. Yes, I'm on the winning side. No more out in sin will I abide. I've enlisted in the fight for the cause of truth and right. Praise the Lord, I'm on the winning side. From the straight and narrow way, I was drifting every day. Out upon the waters deep and wide. But it is all over now, glory light is on my brow, and my soul is on the winning side. I'm on the winning side, yes, I'm on the winning side. No more out in sin will I abide. I've enlisted in the fight for the cause of truth and right. Praise the Lord, I'm on the winning side. I will never have a fear, for my Lord is ever near. And in Him so often I confide. He's the keeper of my soul since I gave him full control. And he placed me on the winning side. I'm on the winning side. Yes, I'm on the winning side. No more out in sin will I abide. I've enlisted in the fight for the cause of good and right. Praise the Lord, I'm on the winning side. Father, thank you that while we were victims without a hope, you made us victors in Christ. God, thank you for this reminder of the obedience and the...